So, congratulations. We made it. We all made it. It's the last evening of the retreat. Maybe it was tenuous for a while at some point with ups and downs, but you all hung in there. Congratulations. You all hung in there. Yay. Yay. Exactly. Yay. And as, as the retreat is winding down, it's a good time, as it's already been said, not to think, oh, I experienced this, I didn't experience that, you know, to create a report card, a mental report card. I'm, I give myself an A or a B or a C or a D or F or whatever, grading yourself. Um, this practice has long-term effects. It's planting seeds. You have no idea what seeds have been planted and when these seeds might germinate. So it's just too soon. It's not wise at this point to decide that you're done. Your retreat is not over. Your retreat is going to continue when you go home. Your life is your retreat. This is just, this is just a part of your practice, a part of your training. And I really mean that. For me, things have really gelled, not just on retreat or during retreat, but over a long period of time. It takes a long time. So many of you have wondered and have asked, okay, what next? Where do we go from here? You've left notes, you've asked in the hall. So, so part of this talk Um, is trying to address that. It's the the going home practice. And then we'll see what else comes up. So, as it's been brought up in the question, um, the QA, I think it was yesterday or today, uh, about, um, maybe it was a couple of days ago, anyway, see all the days now merge into one, or maybe it was in notes, I don't know. The question about metta and vipassana that many of you have asked. So going back home, how to practice. Also, how do these two practices relate? Many of you have come in with with mindfulness, with vipassana experience, and and you've immersed yourself in metta. Um, So I just want to say a few words about these two baskets of practices and how they relate, and then talk about practicalities of going home and practicing them or not. Um, So the two baskets of practices, they're the wisdom practices, vipassana, and these are the hard practices, metta, compassion, etc., the hard practices that we've been engaging in. So vipassana is a wisdom practice. Um, And again, metta, compassion, um, as well as mudita, uh, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, uh, upeka, as well as uh, forgiveness and gratitude. All of these are part of heart practices. They're related 
wisdom without compassion is it's said or or in I'm using compassion now very loosely. Wisdom without the heart practices um, can become um, like riding a really, really rough bicycle. So your your ride, your bicycle ride towards freedom, towards liberation, towards nibbana will be a really, really rough ride if there is no metta, if there's no kindness, it's not imbued with those practices, it can become pretty rough. It's a rough, can become a rough ride. Similarly, the heart practices, as it's been said before, um, without that important aspect of wisdom, they can become idiot compassion, stupid compassion. They can be, it can be unreasonable. So really, both of the, the practices, both of these baskets um, are important in this life, in, in this path. The function of metta, the, the Brahma-viharas as a practice, um, is multifold. One is, as we have said, their concentration practices, or rather, what I like to say, their samatha practices, uni- unifying the mind, collecting the mind, settling the mind. There are also heart cultivation practices, cultivating friendliness, ease, and a particular attitude. So hold those on a footnote, on on sticky notes for a moment. I'll come come back to them. Now, Vipassana, as a wisdom practice, is a practice that produces insights, liberating insights into the three characteristics that have been mentioned in the hall before. The three characteristics also known as the three marks of existence. Anicca, impermanence, inconstancy. Things arise and pass away. That's just what life is. You can see that in the long term, you can see that in the short term. Things arise and pass away. You can see that with your moods, with your emotions, how many, how many mind states you went through in a day. Not just in a day, in an hour. No, in five minutes, how many moods and emotions you went through. Things just came and went. And, and that inconstancy, anicca, impermanence, inconstancy, which one can see really as a mark of existence, that you can't hold on to things. We try to hold on to things, but when you try to hold on, you get rope burn because things continue to change. You try to hold on, and who gets hurt? You get hurt when you really try to hang on to just changing, always changing phenomena. Anicca, anicca, impermanence, inconstancy. That's the first characteristic or mark of existence. The second being dukkha. We've talked about it in a different way here, referred to it as suffering. Dukkha is suffering, that there is, there is suffering in, in life. But more generally, dukkha translated as unsatisfactoriness. Even if things are not really deeply suffering, but they're unsatisfactory. They're just, even if they're pleasant because of the, because of the impermanence, they go away. Something is really pleasant, lunch was really pleasant, it ended. It didn't give lasting satisfaction. So dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Again, one can have many, many different ways 
of seeing this and making friends with it, not as a way of, oh, everything is unsatisfactory. Yeah, it's just it's things come and go. It's just the way it is, and it's okay. It's fine, finding liberation in that, instead of expecting the opposite and being disappointed. It's making friends with the truth of life. The third being anatta, or ungovernability, uncontrollability, not not personality, impersonality, or not self. Again, you've had insights into those by wanting to, for example, bring up metta for someone, and all of a sudden anger comes up. No, I didn't order this. Uncontrollability, it's not self. We don't have control completely over our bodies or minds. The three characteristics, the three marks of existence, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, really are the different there all three of them are different expressions of one another of one another and they're all different expressions of emptiness really i leave that for another talk <laughs> come back <laughs> but in short just to say that deep insight into the nature of of how things are into anicca, dukkha, anatta. That's what creates liberation. That's what creates freedom. When you really see um, how things are organized, how, how things are set up, when you, have, when you see what's called ultimate reality of, of, this, of this life, of this, of this world. And those insights lead to freedom, liberation, nibbana, enlightenment, whatever word you want to use. I prefer the word freedom and liberation because it feels more accessible. You can have more freedom in, and ease in your life, whereas enlightenment, it's, it seems kind of foreboding. But actually, they're the same thing. They're the same thing, freedom, liberation. So now with this, let's go back to the, the two footnotes. The, the two uh, post-its that we left, okay? So going back to the post-its on metta, both as a concentration practice, as a samatha practice. Samatha, unifying the mind, focusing the mind, calming the mind, is a precursor to insight, is a precursor to vipassana, okay? We don't practice concentration, samadhi, samatha practices for their own sake necessarily in this, in this path. We practice them as a precursor to insight. So in this way, metta practices are a precursor to vipassana. They're married to each other in that way. They're not separable. The other, the other post-it was regarding metta as a cultivation of the heart practice and a friendliness, developing friendliness. And that, in a way, is, is the way, is, is again, how, how Vipassana, in, in an organic way, gets married with uh, metta. It's not just awareness, but as Jack Hornfield likes to say, it's loving awareness. It's a friendly awareness. It's this gentle awareness. Otherwise, if it's just, 
awareness, it can be a pretty rough ride on that rough bicycle. So, one thing that can arise for some people is, well, is metta then, is metta a practice that um, is reinforcing the I, is reinforcing the me, 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 because I'm wishing myself well. And so how is that related to, to the not-self, to that anatta and to the liberating insights? And um, So there is relative reality. Relative reality is we're here. We're human beings. We exist. We have an address. We have a job. We, we get thirsty. We hurt. There's a relative reality, which is not deniable. The Buddha never denied that. The Buddha never said there is no self. It's actually not self. And not self is very different from no self. No self is you don't exist. And that's not the case. There's no denial that we exist. It's not self. Not self is that this being is a process, is an ever-changing, all-changing process all the time. There is no core, there's no homunculus back there deciding, okay, say this, do that. It's a process that comes together. Again, that's a bigger talk, a not to talk. But just, just to bring it home here, it's, if you're, the, if you're, um, on the, liber- on, on the re- uh, absolute reality of seeing impermanence, seeing um, self as a process, seeing, uh, seeing the three marks of existence, yeah, it becomes, um, you can't quite say may all the subatomic particles that are arising and passing away in nanoseconds and are empty and unsatisfactory be happy and live with ease. It doesn't quite work, right, on that level to do metta. However, on, on, the, on the relative reality, it completely works to say, may I be happy, may this being be happy. And it's not it reinforcing the I, but, it's reinfor- it, but it is acknowledging our existing on a relative level. And again, the Buddha, there is a story of, of someone coming and asking the Buddha, is there a self? The Buddha didn't answer. He remained quiet. Is there no self? Does the self not exist? The Buddha didn't answer. And the person left. And the Buddha afterwards said that had I said yes, the person would have been confused because they, they, they would have given to the eternalist view. Yes, there is, there is this constant um, atta, soul, self that continues through through lifetimes, um, and then had he said no, the person would have given to, to nihilism. So it's actually both. We exist on the, rel- on the relative level, and then there is the, uh, the um, um, the the insight level. So, so speaking of the meta practice. The practice itself actually 
not only does it not reinforce separateness, that I am separate from you, but actually this practice, it dissolves boundaries. As some of you might have experienced, it does dissolve boundaries. Um, Another way that the practices relate is that the three characteristics leading this insight into the three characteristics and vipassana leading to seeing emptiness of all phenomena, it gives rise to love and compassion because when there's nothing else Love and compassion are the only thing that makes sense. So it is part of this practice when going through through insight practice, for many people, love, compassion, metta naturally arises also as a part of the practice. As seeing the emptiness of phenomena naturally sense of compassion arises. So metta as a practice alone is supportive of liberating insights, but does not produce them alone. Vipassana as a practice is also adjunctive, is needed. There's also what's called liberation through the beautiful. And that is a path where the mind is calmed, is calmed down, is is unified. The practice of concentration is um, done through metta, through the Brahma Viharas, let's say metta. And then one switches over to vipassana, to mindfulness. And since the mind is already imbued with that quality of friendliness and love, the quality of the insights that arise have that, are imbued with the beautiful, quote-unquote, the the immeasurable quality of the Brahma-viharas. So, now... Coming from the theoretical level, I threw a lot of theory at you in a moment, just now. Coming back to the practical level. So going home, taking this practice home. Dedicating, it, and questions might arise for you, dedicating a period of your, your life, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years to metta or bring it in when necessary. For example, um, when, uh, or bring it in at the beginning of your sit, at the end of your sit, and do vipassana. There's so many ways that actually you have a lot of freedom to experiment what you, what you can do, what really works for you. As I mentioned, for me, it worked for me to, to uh, my aspiration was to take a year of my life and dedicate it to this practice. And it was wonderful. And still now, I bring the Brahma Viharas in whenever 
feels like they're they're called for, they're needed for when there's a lot of suffering, when I'm suffering, there's I bring in self-compassion, when there is when there's upset and anger, I I, I bring it in because um, metta is the antidote for ill will and anger. I bring that in. Just if when I'm driving especially, I bring it in a lot for me and all the drivers because it really calls me down. So I just bring it in. Um, so I invite you to see what, to be your own Dharma coach in this way and see what works for you. Does it work for you to dedicate a period to this practice now that you've done this retreat and you're really fired up about these practices? Or does it, does it work better for you to bring this practice in at the beginning of your sit for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever again. Be a scientist of your own mind. Experiment. See what works. Or bring it at the end. Or if you have two sits, one of them be metta, one of them be vipassana. Play around. See what works for you. And then, for many, the question can also come up if you do decide to dedicate a period of time to this practice. Um, do you um, dedicate, do, do you go through all the categories in one sit? Do you um, uh, dedicate one sit to just one category, one person, um, or dedicate one week to a category, to a person? Again, experiment. I know I'm offering a lot of flexibility. Um, but this, there, is, there are no hard and fast rules. One thing, though, I will tell you is that going through ca- changing categories very quickly uh, in one sit, for some people, it can lead to a restless mind. It can, can lead, you know, it can be very quick. So see if that happens for you. Check it out. If it does, then stick to one person. Stick to, to one category for a length of time. Experiment and see what works. And whatever you do, um, don't make a burden of it. Practice works best when it's, when it's easy. It's not a should. It's not a, I have to. It's not a something separate from your life. But it's integrated. And don't set yourself up to fail. So going back home, you might be really excited and say, okay, I'm going to sit two hours a day. Okay, I suggest you make that something really reasonable that you know you cannot fail. Maybe it'll be two hours for one day. Maybe it'll be 10 minutes for a week. Maybe it'll be 45 minutes for a week or whatever your life is. I don't know what you might be retired. You might have a lot of time. You might have a really, really busy life. Figure out something that will work for you and you cannot fail so that you don't make this yet another, oh, should, or I didn't have time for it today. One, one thing I did for, for a while, actually, and I learned this from someone whom I wish I could remember to give them credit to right now, but um, the advice was make the commitment just to sit, just to sit down. That's it. Make that commitment, to just to sit down and then get up. Because that much, at the time, I knew I could do. I knew I could sit on my designated place to meditate. I could sit and I could get up. But what would usually happen, interestingly enough, I would sit down 
I would take a few breaths and I would take a few more breaths and I would take a few more breaths and oh, I would be meditating for half an hour. But, but the entry was really, really non-intimidating. The entry was just to sit or maybe just to sit for 30 seconds, maybe just to sit for, for one minute. Again, other people might have different suggestions, my colleagues. For you, it might also work to, to have strong determination. I'm going to sit for an hour. Maybe that does work for you. Again, see what, what works best for you. And also, practice is not limited to the cushion, as we all know. Metta is best practice as a daily life practice also. You can do stealth metta on the subway, on bus, especially while driving. I found when I'm driving, if I wish all the drivers on the road well, may all, be, may all of us be well, um, it calms me down. It really calms me down. And by the time I get to my destination, I'm, I'm much happier. At the grocery store, walking around, something will be on your mind anyway, right? When you're walking around and doing errands, so it might as well be something. Might as well your mind be imbued with heavenly states instead of instead of worry and and whatever else. So practicing, practicing. I'd like to offer you a little story about practice. Um, The story is called The Monastic Alternative. And the story is from the book called The Monastery Within, and it's by one of my teachers, Gil Fronsdal. As a teenager, she often visited the monastery. She was deeply attracted to the monastic life. The Buddhist path through liberation was what had the most meaning for her. When she became an adult, she planned on joining the monastic order. However, when she turned 21, her older sister and her sister's husband died in an accident and she became the foster parent for their two young children. In addition, her own parents had become quite old and needed her help. As the only income earner in the family, She had to work long hours every day. She loved to meditate, but with all the work and caregiving she had to do, she had no time for it. Since she was not able to fulfill her aspirations for following the monastic path, she went to the abbess of the monastery and asked how she could follow the path with the life she had to live. The abbess said that if she couldn't meditate, then the best alternative is to be grateful for everything. So many of you have talked about feelings of gratitude that have come up for you on this retreat. Gratitude is closely related to metta. They flow in and out of each other. And in fact, the practice of sympathetic joy, mudita, the third Brahma-vihara, when one practices mudita for oneself, so being happy for one's own happiness, 
may my happiness continue, may it never cease, it automatically becomes a gratitude practice. So gratitude is already in the Brahma Viharas. So as you are going home, I like to offer, I like to talk a little bit about gratitude as a practice to take home. And not to feel like, oh my goodness, okay, she talked about metta and then vipassana and gratitude too, I have to practice that too. No, you don't. It's just an offering. And it's, it's people have different ways of, of, of connecting with different practices. And gratitude can be a really lovely and easy doorway for practice for many people. And also metta can be a doorway into gratitude. I'll talk more about that. So gratitude, thankfulness, gratefulness. It's a wonderful daily life practice and is adjunctive to to the practice that we've talked about in a very informal way. If you don't have time to practice, to sit on the cushion, I hope you do. And if you don't, then practice being grateful for everything. Robert Emmons, who is the foremost researcher on gratitude at University of California, Davis, the author of Thanks, he says, we all begin life dependent on others, and most of us end life dependent on others. If we are lucky, in between we have roughly 60 years or so of unacknowledged dependency. I love that, unacknowledged dependency. The human condition is such that throughout life, not just at the beginning and end, we are profoundly dependent on one another. Gratitude is the truest approach to life. We did not create or fashion ourselves. We did not birth ourselves. Life is about giving, receiving, and repaying. We are receptive beings dependent on the help of others and their gifts and their kindness. So basically, what he's saying is that humans are born, they survive off the generosity of others, and then die. And gratitude, naturally, is the organizing principle of life in this giving and receiving circle of life. So, we already have a feeling that gratitude lifts the heart and and is good. We already know that feels good as practitioners, right? Science doesn't need to tell us. But guess what? Science does tell us. They've done a lot of research on gratitude. So far, it's unanimous. It's good for you. (laughs) Count your blessings, not your burdens. So this famous practice that many of you are familiar with and Sharon mentioned in her talk is a very simple practice of writing down every day five things you're grateful for. And this was the seminal work of Robert Emmons. And the very first study that he did, he asked people to 
do that for just, um, just write one sentence about five things you're grateful for once a week for two months. And from this very simple act, not very complicated, not a seven-day retreat in silence, um, significant effects were observed. Compared to the control group, all the participants in the gratitude group were more optimistic. They felt happier. They had fewer physical problems. And they spent more time working out. That one is interesting. <laughs> and then he repeated the exercise, the experiment at that point with polio survivors and other, um, and other people with neuro, neuromuscular problems. And sure enough, same thing happened. Feeling happier, more optimistic than the control group. And these were both reports by them and corroborated by their spouses, <laughs> those who have spouses. Additionally, it turns out they fell asleep more quickly at night, slept longer, and woke up feeling more refreshed. It's interesting. You remember those 11 benefits of metta? <laughs> See the relationship? Isn't that interesting? So Emmons says, I love this quote by him, if you want to sleep more soundly, count blessings, not cheap. <laughs> It actually works, I've tried it. <laughs> and and in, since then, since the, since the time he did the first study that I talked to you about, he's actually run thousands of subjects, um, age eight to 80. Includes all of us, and um, I think. And with the variation that he had them um, do this exercise for just three weeks, not for two months. <laughs> And many, many more observations he made. I'll just share the, the list with you. And by the way, um, for those who are interested in, in these studies and will be writing me notes afterwards, if you go to the Greater Good Science website, it's the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. They have a lot of uh, articles and, and pointer to original research on gratitude. Really well organized. So three groups of results, physical, psychological, social. Physical ones, stronger immune system. Again, these are going to sound similar to, to the metta and the compassion ones because these are related practices, bring up similar things. But anyway, stronger immune system, less bothered by aches and pains, lower blood pressure. And again, I, just, I remind you, all of these results is from the three weeks of writing five things you're grateful for at the end of the day. Very simple. Exercise more, sleep longer, feel more refreshed. Um, they tried it with people who had heart attacks, both two weeks, three months, and six, six months after their heart attack. Those who were in the grateful category had less inflammation and faster recovery. Psychological effects, higher levels of positive emotions, basically they were happier more alert, alive and awake, more joy and pleasure, more optimism and happiness, sense of meaning of life. So they had a better sense of, of, of meaning. Higher long-term satisfaction with life, less anxiety and depression, body image issues. And also they, tr they tried this with people with severe depression and suicidal ideation in a psychiatric ward, which also worked pretty well. 
social results. The practice of um, the, the practice of gratitude makes you nicer. Surprise, surprise, makes you kind. Da relationship between metta, friendliness and goodwill and gratitude, right? But again, it's nice to see it um, validated. Um, more forgiving, more outgoing, feeling less lonely and isolated. It basically, it, it, it increases a feeling of social connection. Um, it strengthens bonds in intimate relationships and friendships. And kinder be- it uh, increases kinder behavior towards o- others, um, including romantic partners. One variation of this, by the way, one variation of this exercise <clears throat> is a one by um, Martin, Se- Martin Seligman, who's the founder of Positive Psychology. He did a study in 2005 called Three Good Things. So the variation is, in this case, you just basically write three good things, not five, but you write about them in detail, and you write... Again, you describe why you think they happened. And what he found is that um, when people did this for just one week, six months later, there were measurable increases in their level of happiness, which is pretty significant. So some time ago, um, so I'm curious, how many of you have tried any of the gratitude practices, a show of hands? bunch of people have done them. Great. Neat. Yeah. And I've done them. So um, there are variations both with the first one with the five where you can either write it on your own on a journal at, at the end of the day or you can have an email buddy and email them at the end of the day so, so there's a sense of accountability. Oh, they're waiting for my email. Ah, do it before I go to bed. Um, and I've done both versions and it, it really does work. It's pretty amazing. After doing it for a few days, you start noticing your, your heart is uplifted. You feel happy. You feel more grateful. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. It really, it's, it's, if you haven't tried it, try it. What do you have to lose? It's really straightforward. It's really simple. Um, if it was a pill, we would all go for it, right? <laughs> If, if there was a pill that would increase your level of happiness and satisfaction and, and, and social connection and would make you kinder, like, sure, you would take the pill. It would be easy. And this is, this is not that much harder. Um, recently, this is, this is what I love about, about giving Dharma talks. When I was doing my research, I found this alternate one by, the Martin, by Martin Seligman, which is the three things, and you write more detail. And I realized, oh, I haven't done this one. I'm going to do this one. So I did it, actually, uh, a couple of months ago. And sure enough, it was so interesting to see the state of mind change as I was doing it. Through the week, I noticed it changing. And it was just a couple of months ago. And it's already... It, anyway, don't, don't take my word for it. Do it for, your, do it for yourself. Check it out for yourself. Pretty amazing. If you're not the kind of person who would take on a practice like this, I have another suggestion. Don't worry. 
that is actually a practice of savoring, being present and mindful, which you're already being trained, training yourself in any way. But the idea is, is that when um, that there is there is hedonic adaptation, where we actually adapt to the good in our life, and we just and we take it for granted after a while. But by actually savoring, being present, being mindful in the moment, it counters this hedonic adaptation of, oh yeah, I've eaten you know, the, this, this meal, and you're just not even paying attention to this amazing, delicious food that you're eating, or this wonderful, the wonderful weather that you're walking in, or that the sidewalk you're walking on, oh, it actually doesn't have any holes. I was in Burma years ago, and it was pretty amazing. You had to really, really watch where you were walking because there were holes in the sidewalk. Here in New York City, often you don't have to worry about that, right? If you're mindful, there's so much to be grateful for in simple little things, and you don't necessarily have to write them down at the end of the day if that's not the kind of thing you want to do. Einstein says, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. I'd also like to share a quote by author, author G.K. Chesterton. You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. So that's the idea of everyday practice, taking this practice home, saying grace, being present, being mindful, appreciating, allowing naturally gratitude to come up. And again, you'll find your own expressions of gratitude, whatever way works for you. I shared with you, I think, at the beginning, that whenever I bow in the hall, for me, this is an expression of gratitude for me. I'm grateful for being right here, right now, in this moment, for everything that has come to this moment, all the cause and conditions that have brought me here, some cause and conditions, difficult, some easy, but gratitude for everything, everything, for this moment, being conscious, being in this life, being in this form, right here, right now, appreciating the impermanence, the fragility, all of that for me that comes together. Gratitude. When we feel grateful, the heart opens up to kindness. We want to be generous. We want to be kind towards others and ourselves. And similarly, metta, friendliness, it it brings out 
it brings out that feeling of gratitude when we are, as many of you have talked about it, as you've done metta practice on this retreat and so much feeling of gratitude for connections in your life have come up for you. So one thing that I also wanted to definitely mention is the same way that we've talked about the near and far enemies of the other Brahma Viharas, gratitude can also have a, a far enemy to watch for. It's not in the classical text necessarily, but it is a feeling of I, I should be grateful. And I should be grateful. I shouldn't complain. I should be grateful for this. Why am I aren't I grateful? I should be grateful. So that suppression that is a sure way to kill gratitude. Don't push it. Gratitude is not a practice to be pushed. Allow it to arise. If it doesn't arise, don't push it. Just as simple as that. Ask yourself, can I be grateful for this? Can I be grateful for this too? And if the answer is no, not right now, maybe not, that's fine. Let it be. Don't push it. That's a really, really important um, distinction because I think for many people, or maybe for some people, I've heard, because of their background and upbringing, you should be grateful. You should be grateful. It becomes more of a burden than, than a liberation of the heart. So let it arise naturally. Don't push it. Gratitude. Gratitude for everything. Can I be grateful for this too? Can I be grateful for this too? From a particular perspective, everything is perfect as it is. From a particular perspective. I'd like to share a poem with you from Billy Mills about gratitude for everything. Billy Mills was born in 1938 in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And he was a Sioux um, Native American. And he was raised on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. He grew up in poverty and was orphaned at the age of 12. He turned to sports as a positive focus in his life and took up running. In the 1964 Tokyo Olympic Games, he won the 10,000-meter race that no American had ever won. And he's, been, he's worked a lot um, with youth and in the, uh, um, in the American, um, Native American community. This poem is called New Life, Wokini, Wokini, New Life. 
there are two words I would like to explain that he uses. One word is iktumi, which means trickster or mischievous spirit, iktumi. And the other one is wakantanka, the sacred or the divine. And the name of the poem again is Wakini, New Life, by Billy Mills. In my youth, I respected the world and life. I needed not anything but peace of heart. And yet, I changed despite myself and believed in Iktumi's lies. He seemed to know all the truth. He promised to make me happy. He made me ask Tanka for wealth that I might have power. I was given poverty that I might find my inner strength. I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. Despite myself and Iktumi, my dreams were fulfilled. I am richly blessed more than I ever hoped. I thank you, Wakantanka, for what you've given me. Gratitude for everything. I like to end with with a song, actually, tonight. I, I won't sing it, don't worry. <laughs> no need to run out. So this song, which I'd like to play a part of it for you, and I'll read it first. It's, um, I share it as both as an ode to life, because you're going back to your home life, even though you, this has been a part of your life. Um, and also I share the song as, as a blessing, because at the very end of it, I like the, the words are like a blessing, as you'll hear. So the song is, is sung by um, one of the great women of jazz, uh, Shirley Horn. I don't know who's familiar with Shirley Horn. Oh yeah, a bunch of people, cool. Um, she's a highly respected, both as a pianist and as a vocalist, and worked with other male jazz greats, such as Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie. She passed away in 2005 at age of 71. And this was her signature song, it's called, which is called Here's to Life. And it, I love the song. Um, Per se, it's not a Buddhist song, but in a way, it is a Buddhist song. It's about the human condition. 
and it brings in metta, love, sympathetic joy, it brings in compassion, it talks about love and loss, all very briefly, ups and downs, and embracing life fully in each moment with all its joys and its mess and its messy complications. And basically, what I also love about bringing that in is that what we've been doing here all week is not so esoteric. We've just been embracing life. And all of the the many things that this song talks about. So it's just part of life. So, so I'll, I'll read the lyrics for you first. <clears throat> no complaints and no regrets. I still believe in chasing dreams and placing bets. But I have learned that all you give is all you get. So give it all you've got. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's true about life. I've had my share, I drank my fill, and even though I'm satisfied, I'm hungry still to see what's down another road beyond the hill and do it all again. It's that sense of curiosity sometimes that keeps us going, sometimes in, in very difficult times in life. The sense of, I wonder what's going to happen to me. I've had that before. I wonder what's going to come next. Continues, so here's to life and all the joy it brings. So here's to life, to dreamers and their dreams. We're all dreamers and we have dreams of more love and kindness for ourselves and for humanity to dreamers and their dreams. That's all of us. Funny how the time just flies, how love can go from warm hellos to sad goodbyes. That's love and loss. We all experience that. It's impermanence, loss. And leave you with the memories you've memorized to keep your winters warm. A lot of memories that come up as we've experienced. For there is no yes in yesterday, and who knows what tomorrow brings or takes away. As long as I'm in the game, I want to play for laughs, for life, for love. So here's to life and every joy it brings. And here's to life for dreamers and their dreams. And here's the blessing part of the song. It's a blessing of compassion, mudita, vicarious joy, and metta, and embracing it all. And here it goes. May all your storms be weathered, and all that's good get better. Here's to life. Here's to love. Here's to you. So I'd like to play the last minute and half of the song for you.
there's no yes in yesterday And who knows what tomorrow brings or takes away As long as I'm still in the game I want to play For laughs, for life, for love So here's to life to all of you. Thank you for being here. And for all of your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.